namo tassa bhagavato arhato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arhato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arhato samasambuddhassa buddham dhammam sankhandamasami So the problem is attachment to the khandas. That's how the Buddha, in the morning chanting that we do, earthly suffering, old age is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, and grief and despair, separation from the loved, association with the unloved, different ways that the teaching describes dukkha, and he says, in brief, the five focus of the grasping mind to do come. So, uh, this is a very important uh, fundamental contemplation to understand how we approach the practice of Buddhist freedom. Because if we are still pursuing some aspect of the khandhas, then we won't get it right. So, upadana, attachment or preoccupation with the khandhas. And that preoccupation is driven by all manner of things. And in the uh, Dhammachaka Sutta, we have driven by tanha, driven by craving. And so we need to Pay attention not just to the khandas, but why why we are continually preoccupied with them. Why? Why is there this continual mulling over, reacting to, trying to get rid of, uh, constantly caught up in thoughts, uh, driven by emotion? Why isn't mind just available, or just knowing the way things are? Or when it does just know the way things are, and there isn't preoccupation, what does that feel like? Because that happens too, doesn't it? Where you just, you just know. The breeze feels this way. So, the breeze feels this way. What's preoccupation with the breeze would be, I don't like it. Why don't you turn it off? It's cold. I don't like the cold. And so from the suchness of coolness, you get preoccupation. And that preoccupation is driven by aversion, resistance, in this case. So there's resistance to the way things are. There's anticipation of the way things will be. Um, there's um, infatuation, uh, absorption of the way things are. Sensual, sensual indulgence. Just, just preoccupation with pain in a, in a meditation. Just kind of all trying to get the posture right, anticipating the end of the sitting, thinking about something else so you don't feel discomfort. So just discomfort itself, not a big thing. Not a big thing, but one of the ways the khandas do manifest is as discomfort. It's the natural phenomenon of discomfort. Emotional discomfort, physical discomfort, environmental discomfort. These are natural phenomena. They are the way they are. So that's not the problem. The problem is the, the preoccupation, constant preoccupation with the body, uh, with bodily feelings. Constant with emotions, emotional feelings, and and 
so quite often we, we if we mistake the the, the, the trajectory or the, or the project of Buddhism, we're just trying to uh, reorganize the the khandhas, just trying to get everything right all the time, uh, whether it's the people we're with or you know, the environment we're in. Or, so uh, that's looking in our own place. And yet, environment is important. People are important. Bodily health is important. So those are the, the conventional things that we try to do the best we can. But as contemplatives and meditators, we're really looking at this constant, constant preoccupation. Even preoccupation with your own enlightenment. That's still a preoccupation. Still, I'm, I'm someone who has to become something. It's still a thought, an idea, uh, a self-perception, a perception that I am something, I am lacking, I need to get something else. It's still perceptions, anticipation, time. These are all... Movements in consciousness, they're, they're kind of formations, they're structures, they're born and they die, they're dependently originated. So anything is dependently originated, it can't be it, it can't be it, it just can't be it, it's not it. So the, the various ways that we, we, uh, we approach this uh, um, path to freedom, um, first of all, like I was saying last night or yesterday, you, you we need some stability. We need some kind of stability of presence to, to notice the, the movements of the kindness. And so we meditate. We meditate to, to, to learn how to be present to the way things are. Not to get rid of it, not to annihilate it, not to get something else, but just to learn for 45 minutes to be truly present to the total experience of 45 minutes of meditation. Um, and that's, that in itself is a challenge. Because the mind gets very quickly preoccupied with planning or creating something or uh, worrying about something, anticipating something. So, at least a laboratory of meditation is a very interesting or very um, a lab, like a lab, isn't it? A nice structure where you can watch preoccupation and begin to really know preoccupation, where where the mind is going, why it keeps picking up these things. And one of the things we try, we're trying to do in in, um, in contemplative life of, of watching the or observing the five khandhas, knowing the five khandhas as an dukkanata, is to learn how to separate out the mood from the object of the mood. So if um, if something uh, is 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 very annoying during the sitting, like your body or, or um, someone's breathing or something like that. Um, just to see, like, the sound that is annoying is just a sound. But the mood which is annoyed, that's something. It's not the sound. For sure it's not the sound. The sound is as it is. It's that way. But the mood of annoyance is something that's added to that sound. And to separate that out is, is pretty fundamental to being free. Otherwise, any sound, any sound is going to keep you preoccupied. Any sound can keep you so not there's no freedom in that. So actually taking that contemplation as as your meditation when, say in this case, there is some kind of resistance to a sound. We actually have enough understanding of the teaching. So okay, I'm preoccupied with the sound. What was why can't there just be sound to sound? Why is this preoccupation? Why can't it just be sound to sound? 
and then you see this uh, not wanting, not wanting sound. And to separate that out, and just to see what is the mood of not wanting? What is the mood of resistance? What's it really, really like to resist something and not want something? Before you make a judgment that you shouldn't be that way, before you practice metta meditation, before you do anything about that, what's it? What is the mood of the mind to separate that out? Um, and and the way we do that is we we have a kind of pause where when you say, "Well, that's the sound," that's the sound. That there is this mood, there is this resistance. Then you have to wait. You have to wait and just observe in a kind of welcoming way, in a kind of allowing way, uh, in a kind of um, giving permission to whatever arise to arise. Because if you try to, you know, trying to find the mood, you're usually trying to get rid of it. So it's a kind of openness and attentiveness. Okay, there's the sound, and look, there's annoyance. Well, what is annoyance? What is it? What does it feel like? You're not kind of going in there trying to get it, but the mind is very open and attentive. And then you, and you see there's a structure, a mood, which has a bodily component, which you could call an emotional component. And it's not the sound. You know it's not. And then the sound, the sound's still there. You can see, oh, yeah, that's, that's a mood of the mind. That mood, that mood is conditioned. And there, there you start to see the three characteristics. That this mood is arisen because it causes... It endures because of causes. Um, and then it's not personal, and it's uncertain, and it's changing, and all the rest of it. You see that because now it's just a mood. You see, the contemplative knows the angry mind is the angry mind in the Satipatthana. The contemplative knows the bright mind is the bright mind. Um, just knows, just knows. Without, in that sutta, it doesn't say you. The contemplative knows the angry mind, then does something about it. You can certainly do something about it, let it go, and all that. But, but first and foremost, to actually know it and what's it like before, before you start to do something about it. Because if you don't really know it, if you don't make it conscious, usually, the the attempt to do something about it, as it were, is coming from craving, self identity, um, and there isn't the patience and the courage and the wisdom to just let it be conscious. Let the mood be conscious. So just a, a little simple example, like being annoyed at, at, at something, in the monastery, at someone, uh, there's the person, there's behavior, or there's the sound, or the temperature, or whatever. That's, that's the objective reality, and it's real. And then there's the preoccupation. Oh, why is there this preoccupation? And... Not to analyze it either, not just to kind of, well, I'm preoccupied because that's still preoccupation. Analysis is still preoccupation. Some analysis can be helpful to lead you to non-preoccupation, but the constant thinking about is just thought still. You're still in, in the realm of thought. And, and this takes presence, doesn't it? It takes a certain stability of mind to be able to do that. When you're just running with the reactions to events, doesn't happen. It takes stability, it takes presence, it takes maturity, it takes maturity, takes courage, it takes courage to look at fear. Right? Uh, there's a difference between being fearful and running away from fear. That's much much different. Running away from fear is not is uh, is an addition to fear. So to be courageous doesn't mean we don't have fear. 
doesn't come with feeling sides. No, to be courageous is to witness, make welcome that which is most unwelcome. Um, so, so the various kinds of anticipation we, we experience, the kinds of anxieties we experience as human beings around future, around people, around relationships, around health, around grander things that, you know, if you think about like global warming, I, I don't think much about that outside the point of myself, but global warming, whatever, whatever anxiety might, might be triggered, that, those are the objects. That's what, that's what creates the anxiety. Some, some future social possibility. Like I always joke on retreats, when we start the interviews on retreats, I say, I say to people, as soon as you see your name on the list that you're going to be talking with the teacher at 2 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, you start to get anxious. Most people do. Anxiety. What am I going to say? I don't know. I don't really have any questions. Maybe it won't go. That's the object. The object is the 2 o'clock interview with teacher. But what is anxiety before, before I start thinking about the future? What is anxiety just as a, as a condition, as a mood of the mind? And when we, when, we, when we do that, then we always come to this knowing. And the mood is seen as an object. We're no longer the subject of it. And, and if we have faith in that, then, then the knowing becomes the dominant factor rather than the mood. When we don't have the mindfulness to know moods as mood, uh, as simply that, then the dominant factor is ego, self, because we get caught up in believing, uh, I am this way or that way. And then we project that outwards. And fears then become a reality, an outward reality, and then other people relate the rest to that, and it's a kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy of suffering. So the, the 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 contemplative life is not it's not just a meditative life, right? Buddhism isn't just about samatha practice where you where you um, dominate an object with with uh, awareness control and so on and then um, push everything else out. It's not just that. You can obviously we need to stabilize the mind, so we do samatha practice. We stabilize stabilize the mind into the present moment. Um, but the ongoing contemplative life that we have also is very, very important that, that all, all aspects of our lives are, are contemplative possibility. So as we, as we observe our preoccupations, we can, we can then use like Four Noble Truths that we were chanting to see, well, uh, what, what is it that I want? What is this wanting all the time, this movement to the future? What is this resistance? Why? Why? Why is it always troublesome and problematic and complicated? Life is not so complicated. This is the way it is now. I begin to see that our preoccupation might be through the habit of criticism. That that the the way the the, the thinking mind and the emotional heart have been conditioned through various familial, social, and whatever patterns from before. Uh, keeps preoccupying our attention with criticism, judgment, all the time. Judging this, judging that, criticizing this, criticizing that. And then we feel guilty about that. 
no, he shouldn't be critical. He's a really nice person. And that. But that's still preoccupation. Still the same thing. You know, there's no freedom. It's better than just dumping on a person. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's more considerate. Good. You know, just a dumping people. But, that, but like just the constant fighting with something, the constant fighting with my own uh, criti critical mind or cynical mind or, or, you know, that just... Whereas the awakened aspect is this is an object. So the contemplative knows the critical mind is critical mind. Now when you do that, you don't jump back into self-criticism. You just know critical mind is functioning. And try to separate it out. You know, it's, I'm, I'm feeling really critical about something in the monastery, some aspect of the chanting or the, the diet or the, or the people or whatever. And, and then that's the object that, that, that the, that's a projection, I suppose, we say in modern terminology. That's the, the thing that uh, critical mind hooks onto. And there might be some validity within one's responsibilities. But if it's always preoccupying my attention, I'm always going that way. But I've noticed that. Why? And then, so then through that, you know, oh yeah, okay. That's the way the mind preoccupies itself. What is, what is that mood? irrespective of the object. So the object triggers it, and that that type of mind has been triggered a billion times, and finally one day one says, there it goes again. And then rather than just getting down on oneself, okay, what is, what is, what is criticism? What is, what is it? What is, where is it? What is it like? Okay, come on, let's have a look at you. And that's awareness. It's no longer running away from it, saying it's bad, or distracting it, or repressing it, or all that rest of it. It's just saying, all right, what is it? What is criticism? And then you wait. And then you wait. And you start to see there's a kind of energy there. There's a kind of energy. And in the seeing of the energy, that energy begins to be less coagulated. You know, it begins to kind of run through your system rather than being kind of stuck there as a knot. So contemplate like each of us can contemplate where, like in in a in a daily cycle uh, of of our life, how how much of our attention is available? How much of our attention is is present to the way things are, as the way things are, even if it's an emotion, negative emotion, and how much of our attention is not available, preoccupied, attached to the data. It's just like that's a really interesting contemplation, just hour by hour. What's the preoccupation? Yeah. And as you, as you notice that, in the noticing, you're not preoccupied. In the noticing, there's, there's availability. And we can still function. You, know, you can be, you can still you know, cook and shave and, for those who shave. Um, you know, whatever you have to do is still functioning. It's not like you're not functioning. So we look at upadana. You know, we look at like a preoccupation. The word attachment is a pretty powerful word, and so we get into preoccupations like I shouldn't be attached, which is another preoccupation. <laughs> it's another thought, another opinion, another judgment. Just goes on and on and on. But just not. Well, what does it mean not to be preoccupied? That means you're watchful, but you're available. You're simple. It's very simple. Preoccupations are very complicated. So we say that, that the, um, 
because of the primal cause, the genesis of, of our dukkha is avicca, is ignorance. And so we say ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, suffering is cause, uh, or we say seeing in the uncertain, seeing certainty in the uncertain, or seeing permanence in the impermanent. Seeing a self and that which is not self, and that which is unsatisfactory, trying to find satisfaction. These are different ways that we talk about ignorance, and then and its its result is always dukkha, is always suffering, is always some kind of confusion or discontent, and that's that's what we need to constantly awaken to, don't we? And not take the projection, not believe in the projection, whatever it is, but see what is it. And this, sometimes this is like very, very mundane, you know, it might be just a minor annoyance that the mind is just ticking over. Sometimes it's volcanic. Sometimes the fears we can face as human beings, strong karmas, very, very powerful, project all kinds of things onto all kinds of uh, people and situations, angers and rages. Sometimes it's just a little worry. There's all preoccupation. So sometimes it has emotional power, sometimes it's just the mind just ticking over, thinking about something in the future, you know, ho-hum, one thought leading to another, still preoccupation. So it needn't be like powerful dukkha, but it is unsatisfactory because one is paying attention in the wrong way, paying attention to the unsatisfactory. So then we, as we, as we, um, observe ourselves in ways of preoccupation, we'll, we'll begin to see their underlying forces, which we call craving, and which have then uh, manifestations such as anger or fear, but just to see the kind of raw nature of craving, not wanting, just not wanting this existence or this mind state or this body or this social situation, just this kind of rejection of resistance to, just, just using that as a theme. Just pick up the theme, resistance. Just look at all the different ways that we resist life. Our own mind, our own bodies, the environment, the, what we don't like about this, just the constant resistance. And so the, the, the teaching that the Buddha recommended was content with little, uh, gratitude. Uh, these kinds of things are the method, not the goal, as I was saying yesterday. So contentment with little is a method to look at resistance or craving. Gratitude is a method to 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 reflect upon the the ungrateful and constantly demanding mind. Uh, metta bhavana is a method to look at the, the the unforgiving, constantly domineering, beating up mind. Sometimes we do that. We you know we have we have responsibilities or we have authority or for whatever reason. Yeah, we think we can dump on people. Somehow we think we have permission to do that. But if you're doing metta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, let them be able and upright, and so on and so forth. If you do that as a contemplation, then that becomes a, a method or a mirror to notice the mind which is domineering, which is critical, which is judgmental, which is unforgiving. And that helps you to awake. So the method of metta, as opposed to the goal of metta, the goal of metta would be 
that I am someone who is always loving. Good luck. <laughs> but the method of metta bhavana is to create an alternative perception in your mind to the habitual perceptions of aversion and criticism. So let's say I am um, habitually critical of someone and uh, whenever I think of them I can only think critical thoughts. I can only think what they've done wrong or how inadequate they are or what they've done to me in the past. And so the mind is now, uh, the mind's preoccupation is in a groove of criticism. And what you want to do is not just to be someone who doesn't have that, it's just don't believe it. Don't go there. Not self. Uncertain. So you can use language like that, uncertain. And the way, what helps to do that is to actually consider beautiful qualities of the person, wholesome qualities of the person. Hard to do when, when there's just criticism. It might be about yourself. Um, I remember he, he, uh, he was doing practices of, of, of using his own name and saying nice things about himself. He found it really difficult. He said, you're so lovely. <laughs> he found it difficult too. But the mind, which is preoccupied with, with judgment and criticism of someone, yourself or others, how do you get out of that? If every time you see someone, your mind's always critical. If every time you think about yourself, your mind's always critical. That's preoccupation, right? So, how can you get the, the dexterity, the speed, the quickness of awareness to not go down that alleyway? There are all manner of ways you can do it if you have enough dexterity, you see, uncertain. And as soon as you see uncertain, you're not you're not that, you're not that condition anymore. You just know it. Exactly. If you're not that quick and you get hoodwinked, kidnapped, grabbed by that, then you need to maybe put in alternative perceptions to help you. So you do metta bhavana. So you actually think of the person in ways of goodness, in ways of well-wishing, in ways of wholesome, positive qualities. And if you can't do that, then you have to look at that but closely, why, why can't you do that? Why can't you wish this person well? So then there might be like deeper issues of revenge or unforgiveness. You start to, to maybe unravel some pretty unpleasant kinds of emotions. But if you're, if you're constant to, oh, this is, this is the desire to revenge. This is uh, not wanting to forgive, then you're mindful again. You're awake. So metta bhavana is not a smarmy, sentimental, feel-good kind of practice. It might, it might make you feel good, certainly it does. But it has a much richer and deeper um, significance in giving the mind a tone or a quality which helps to be aware of all the negative aversions, criticism, judgments. And all you have to do is to wake up to it. You don't have to get rid of the judging mind or the critical mind. You just have to not go there, not believe it. See, it's uncertain. It's not you. That's that's the trick. And that's the third foundation of mindfulness, the, the contemplative who is 
critical and judgmental knows, oh, this is criticism and judgment. As opposed to what happens is we just recycle that, criticize someone else, criticize myself, criticize someone else, and all preoccupation, still preoccupation. So if you take attachment and preoccupation as the question, uh, then whether I hate myself or hate others, it's still preoccupation. See, well, there's a deeper significance here. It's just to see that mood, and you separate out the mood. If you're critical about someone, okay, that's the person, that's their behavior, and maybe I have to criticize them, and we have to talk about it. But also, what's, what is that? What is that mood? What does it really feel like? Infatuation, same thing, except you don't do metta. But infatuation with someone, or, you know, you, you can only see their, their uh, desirable qualities. Um, you know, fantastic person or beautiful person or rich person or whatever whatever uh, grabs your infatuation as it were and and the mind just goes that way all the time just infatuated all the time uh, it might be an object like a piece of uh, stereo equipment stereo they don't say that anymore say a, a new car or something some kind of uh, object that you want and the mind only sees the beautiful quality of that and the beautiful quality. So then, the mind needs some kind of balancing, doesn't it? It needs some way of awakening to that infatuating kind of energy. So someone who has a kind of predilection to shopping, always likes to shop and get things, uh, sees an advert and says, oh, that, that's really nice, that's really, really nice, that's really, really nice, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice, and just goes and shops all the time. Um, that's infatuation. That's always the preoccupation with the goodies that our culture has. The preoccupation with getting something. The preoccupation with uh, consuming something. A very strong one in our culture. And and just to know that that desire to consume something, to get, desire to get something, just to awaken that, frees you from that. But if if one's uh, Attention isn't strong enough to do that, then we do a super practice. A super practice is seeing the unbeautiful. And, and so like with aversion, there's no problem in seeing unbeautiful. That's the only thing you see. So you need to bring up wholesome, beautiful about this, or wholesome or well-wishing. With infatuation or greed, uh, there, the mind can't see limits, can't see faults. It only sees this possibility of, of uh, happiness. Um, the Barbara Tuchman, the, the great American historian, she wrote a lot about wars and things. And uh, in one of her books, she had this beautiful line, the, uh, the conceit of a happy plan, talking about people who start wars they have this happy plan of how they're going to win the war and then of course it all falls apart and that really fits for the greed mind doesn't it the conceit of a happy plan the conceit of a happy consumption and and to 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 not that to get things is wrong like it's not wrong but but the mind which is always preoccupied with the future with a happy kind of possibility of consuming or getting or buying internet shopping does that People will be on the internet for hours looking for the perfect product. There's a lot of fun in shopping. 
internet shopping, apparently. But it's all preoccupation. It's all preoccupation. So it's kind of seeing that pattern of the mind and not judging, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that because that's still, that goes into aversion. But actually just the waking up, we breathe this way, we do a super practice. And that's seeing the unbeautiful. So that always is like if a husband is with a, he wants to get a, a new motorbike, he's a 50 year old accountant. He wants to get a motorbike, and his wife says, you'll probably be dead, you know, we can't afford it. She's practicing a suba. She's showing the unbeautiful possibilities of getting a motorbike at the age of 50. Whereas the accountant at the age of 50, he only sees his leathers and how is he going to go down, down the street and be real cool and live his uh, hippie days or something like that. He only sees the beautiful, the, it'll all be lovely, it'll be great. Uh, and so asuba is, is not just about corpses and ugliness, but it's seeing the the detch, the um, the uh, what's the word the um, detriment or the, the the downside of something. So when someone you know, notice that when you really want something, and and you've researched it and you know why it's the greatest thing you should get, and then someone says to you, "Yeah, but you." Like someone was telling me they were they were going to get a BMW. This is in New Zealand. They wanted a BMW all their life, all their life, right? And then someone in the family said, "Yeah, but you realize, of course, the maintenance costs are huge." And he got really annoyed. He didn't want to hear that. He just wanted to hear about how wonderful it would get the BMW. And the person in the family was also on the Asubu side. Yeah, you get the BMW, but you know, maintenance costs are going to be huge. Tires cost a law. No, 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 that's the asuba side, the the unbeautiful, the downside of it. So what we do for ourselves is to see when the mind always goes to consuming, getting, building, creating, creativity can that be projects all the time, going to some kind of future that somehow, if we're going to practice non-preoccupation, if we're going to be available to something other than projects and, and the consumption of things, we have to somehow stop doing that. And how do we stop doing that? We look at death. Yeah, okay, I've got this project, or I've got this thing, and well, what if I die tomorrow? We look at its downside. We see the disappointment. We see the restlessness in a mind, which is always going to another event, another event, another thing, another project, another person, another relationship, whatever. We see that movement in, into the future, and somehow... We have to practice renunciation. That's not it. That can't be it. That can't be the goal. If we're practicing for nibbana, if we're practicing for happiness, there is some chance this might give you some happiness. But if you're practicing for nibbana, all preoccupations are unsatisfactory. They're not bad. They're not wrong. It's not like it's immoral. It's different. The the realization, the practice for nibbana is not. It's not. It's not so much a a moral kind of direction. It's a it's a direction away from the preoccupation of the khandhas. It's much greater than morality. Morality is a beginning. It's a, it's a start. It's an important start. Generosity too. But it's much, 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 much more profound than that. It's the non-preoccupation of the khandhas. So there's different ways. You know, you have to look, look in your mind. But just start to evaluate. Not judge. So I just say, okay, in in this 24-hour period, what, what would my mind be, be preoccupied with? 
and figure out how not to be preoccupied with that. How do you do that? How do you do that? You listen, you ground yourself in what you're doing, you do things carefully. Uh, you might then pick up a, a, a gata or a mantra in your mind to center the mind. You might use the breath. Uh, you might just have suggestions of mind, just words which suggest that, whatever it was. But what are the preoccupations? What are you constantly thinking about? What's the mind always mulling over? What is it, what is it doing? And, and then how do you awaken to that? Ah. So the object or the, or the, or the, pro, or the, uh, the storyline you have, of course, what's the mood behind the storyline? Separate that out. Learn how to separate that out. What's it like? Wait, wait, watch, observe. That gives you a lot of vitality. It gives a lot of vitality to the, to the aware mind, to the attentive mind. And then put in, put in the language of freedom, not there. Like with dukkha, the, the, the lakana of dukkha, the characteristic of dukkha, the characteristic of unsatisfactory, say, not there. That's not it. Can't be it. That's not it. Can't be it. Can't be a thought. Can't be a sound. Can't be an emotion. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's contemplation of dukkha. Don't go there. Uh, change, anicca, uncertain. It's not. It's changing. It's uncertain. Not self. Not me. Not mine. It's this kind of application of, of perceptions of three characteristics constantly. So the craving comes up. Not there. Craving comes up. Not there. Resistance comes up. Not there. Not there, not there, not there. Where? Here. Now, knowing, change. Here, now, knowing, change. Just like that. Constantly. Uncertain. That's what these, these teachings are doing. They're bringing you back to the awake mind, which knows a mood is mood. The three characteristics, that's their, that's the methodology there. Not, not as Buddhist opinion or Buddhist uh, dogma, but rather as a constant which brings you back to awareness. Not me, not mine. Uncertain. Judgments you make about people, or make you about yourself. What happens when you say it's uncertain? What happens to what happens to me is then my mind has perspective. It's objective. No longer uh, totally pleasing. So the more we can put into the mind wholesome things, generosity, a sense of um, having fulfilled our duties and responsibilities. Things like that. So, like here, the, the lay people are very diligent in preparing the meals for the uh, for the sangha. Um, very, very generous. And um, like for me, I I, I was an anagarika for an hour. So I've never cooked for the sangha. So I'm not going to disrobe to do it. But um, I I sometimes I just don't probably appreciate enough how much uh, effort goes into preparing a meal. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. you got to feed, how many are you? Almost 20, 20 people. got to get it done between, what, 8 and 10.30? Yeah, that's, that's, that's quite a lot of pressure. Um, so, um, th those of you who do prepare the food and so on, take joy in that rather than think, oh, I... I burnt the lasagna again. Or, oh, was there enough protein? Oh, he didn't take that dish. Oh my gosh, I don't know. You know, right? that, this is what we sometimes spoil our own joy that way because 
we have maybe high high ideals of perfection and and and, uh, and and it's very good intent you know it's very good intention but do do see like like preparing a meal for the sun it's very meritorious and it's, uh, we couldn't we couldn't survive without it right um and and take that take the work and effort that you've put into that let it be joyous let it be something good that's a good thing to do you know, let let the heart be uplifted by that, uh, so that those kinds of qualities of, of having having served and given bring a kind of mudita to the heart, a happiness, a gladness to the heart, and that's obviously very helpful because the more the heart is content and has gladness and has has uh, forgiveness in it, then it doesn't get preoccupied with the kindness. It doesn't have to. When there's gladness, you don't have to get preoccupied with the kindness because there's no there's no, there's no greed, hatred, delusion there. You can get deluded, but you know you're content. You've done something good. You've done something wholesome, and the sun is able to to keep going for another day. And try, try to try to do that. Bring bring that quality of gladness into the goodness. There. It's always already there. It's not a conceit. It's just a natural consequence of of, of working hard uh, and 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 trying to create. Uh, uh, a meal for the Sangha. Yeah. So you can see quite clearly that the more the heart has happiness, uh, gladness, contentment, it's not going to get preoccupied with the kindness. The kindness of it's all right, you're just there. Yeah, okay, it's a bit cold or whatever. Uh, whereas when the heart has no gladness, hasn't served, hasn't given, hasn't lived morally, uh, is always a kind of uh, trying to get its own little uh, empire or uh, its own way of manipulating things to get its own way, then that heart is already preoccupied, already preoccupied with the kindness. And its consequence is more preoccupation. There's generosity, uh, responsibility, these, these kinds of things uh, give the heart this kind of beautiful quality, uplift quality. Meditation too, you know. Let your meditation be something that brings you ease. Rather than always striving, let, let it be something that brings you a sense of well-being, you know, a sense of presence. It's okay the way it is, rather than, oh gosh, I'm not getting anywhere in my meditation. This kind of striving that we have. Because if the meditation can be a place where you just relax your mind, you're just present with the way things are, then that happiness, happiness of samadhi, um, helps you in not being preoccupied. Or, when you become preoccupied, attached to the kindness, you see it. Oh yeah, that's what's happening. The gladness is going. The ease is going into worry, criticism, judgment, infatuation, whatever it goes. So, samadhi is very important for that. Kind of giving that, giving that stability, giving that foundation of, of well-being in the mind. So tonight is the uh, observance, uh, or the um, 12 o'clock vigil, that's what we call it, 12 o'clock vigil, so we sit till 12 o'clock if you can do it, uh, if you have the energy, the knees, and all the rest of it, if you're jet lagged, not to worry, or if you find it difficult, but try to, try to practice through to 12 o'clock, so the... Uh, the shrine room, try to keep the shrine room very quiet. We won't have a routine, but if everyone could be back 
by quarter past 11. And then we could say, sit the last 45 minutes together as a group. And then uh, do the walking outside if you want, or in the house there. Uh, and then come and go just quietly in the room, sitting quietly. And we're going to try to close the doors really mindfully, carefully. And uh, create a kind of nice, nice atmosphere of quietness. Okay? I'll leave that for reflection. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.